following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So let me start this morning by asking you a question. Um, Hopefully it's a question that all of us can uh, resonate with. And that is the question of, have have you ever had a problem with miscommunication? Maybe it was uh, something in your family. Maybe it was uh, something between you and a work colleague. Or maybe living in a country that perhaps is not your own or visiting a country that's not your own. And you were working in perhaps a second or maybe even a third language and and something happened. Uh, You miscommunicated. There was misunderstanding. We had an event like this a couple years ago. Uh, My wife's parents came out to visit us, and we decided to take them down to Sukhothai, the the first capital of of Thailand. And they were still in in jet lag, and so they were concerned that the next morning they wouldn't wake up on time. And so before we headed off to our rooms, uh, they asked us, they said, do you think we can get a wake-up call? which in many hotels would be just a normal, everyday question that everyone would expect to to get a good answer to. And I said to them, I don't know. It's not something that I've heard of being normal here in Thailand, but but you can try. So they wandered up to the front desk, and um, my mother-in-law began interacting with the hotel staff and said, "Uh, in the morning, can I have a wake-up call? And they looked at her puzzled and went back and forth for a while, and there she was trying to communicate. And so eventually she said, well, in the morning, could I get a wake-up message? And they thought, and they said, yeah, sure. Uh, what time? And so she said 7.30. And so the next morning, there was a knock on their door, and two ladies were standing there saying, we've come for your wake-up massage. <laughs> Miscommunication, misunderstanding. Uh, what they needed was they needed uh, an interpreter. They needed somebody as a, as a go-between to help them communicate the message uh, of what their expectations were and what they were hoping to accomplish. Uh, today, as we look at Exodus chapter 39, the majority of this text that we're looking at has to do with the garments of the high priests. And the high priests within the, the time of the Old Testament served as a, as a go-between. They were a go-between uh, the people of Israel and God. They were there serving, performing sacrifices, but also uh, communicating at times uh, on behalf of God to the people. So Exodus chapter 39, has it's got two sections. The first section is verses 1 to 31, which talk about the garments of the high priest. Uh, And the second section is verses 32 to 43, which talk about the overall completion of the tabernacle. But one theme that sticks out within this chapter is obedience. The people of Israel obeyed God. They followed all of the instructions that they were giving concerning the building of the tabernacle. So many times in this chapter, we encounter the same phrase over and over. As the Lord commanded Moses, or as Yahweh commanded Moses. So I'm going to read through chapter 39, and I'd like you to read along with me. It's not going to be up here on the um, 
screen. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you've got uh, a device with you, open up to Exodus chapter 39. And I want you to see how many times within the chapter here we encounter the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. So we're right into the instructions concerning the priestly garment, starting with verse 1. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns and into the fine twine linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces, joined it at its two edges, and the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it, and made like it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled a span its length and a span its breadth when doubled. And they set it in four rows of stones, a row of sapphire, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row, and the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And they made on the breastplate twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in front of the shoulder piece of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edges next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in the front of the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seams above, the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So he also made the robe of the ephod woven of all blue, and the opening of the robe in it like the opening of a garment, with a binding around the opening, so it might not tear. On the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. They also made bells of pure gold, and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe. Between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twine linen, and the sash of fine twine linen, 
and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied it to a cord of blue to fasten it to the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and of goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all of its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all its utensils, and the oil for the light and the golden altar, the anointed oil and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screens for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of the meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. So how many times do we encounter that phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses? I count nine. Ten? All right, we'll have to recheck. I may have counted wrong. Nine or ten. So we see this theme here of, of completion. The Lord had given them a task, and they had obeyed, they had followed through, they had brought it to completion. Excuse me. After reading all that text, I need to take a little drink here. So as I mentioned earlier, our text is mainly broken into two pieces. Uh, we have uh, verses 1 to 31 is the first section, which refers to the priestly garments. A lot of this text is the very same text that we see in chapters 28. We have two major sections which talk about the priestly garments. Um, and so a lot of this is almost word for word from what we see in chapter 28. And 28, though, was the instructions concerning the garments. And now here we see the fulfillment. They have completed the task of uh, making the garments. They had fulfilled what the Lord had instructed. We don't know exactly what these garments look like. And many artists have attempted to make depictions of, of what we think they may have looked like. If you, uh, if you go online, do a Google search on, on the garments, you'll see some very interesting designs. I uh, pulled one off here, which... Um, I thought it was a pretty good uh, attempt. Um, but we don't know exactly what they look like. But we do know from chapters 28, verse 2, that the purpose of the garment says that they were made for glory and beauty. Uh, that's what the ESV calls it. Or the NIV says that they were for dignity and honor. And they were made of the same kind of materials as the tabernacle itself. 
this was clearly demonstrating there's a direct connection between uh, the priests who are to serve in the tabernacle and the very tabernacle itself. They were the same, same kinds of fabric as the uh, inner curtains. So verses 1 to 7 cover first the garment and the ephod. So the garment for ministering in the tabernacle, it was made of blue, it was made of purple, it was made of scarlet yarn. These were usually colors which indicated uh, royalty or, or things of great importance. But then, interestingly, they took gold and they hammered it out and made strings of gold. Uh, and they wove this into the fabric as well. So gold, gold was woven right in there. And so they took this ephod and it was to come over the shoulders. It was to come down across the chest. Um, and then the breastplate would eventually sit upon that ephod. Um, and then on the two shoulders, there were two stones there. And the, the names of uh, Israel were inscribed, six on one side and, and six on the other. Verses 8 to 21, we have the, uh, the breastplate. Uh, here in, in chapter 39, we're not told clearly the purpose of the breastplate, but in, in chapters 28, verse 15, it's called the breastplate for making decisions in the NIV. Or the ESV calls it a breastplate of judgment. It's a square piece. It's made from the same materials as the ephod, and it's got the 12 stones with the names of the 12 tribes inscribed upon it. Uh, but then additionally, in chapters 28-30, Moses is instructed by God, And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So it seems that these two stones were either set into the breastpiece, or more likely they were probably stored in the breastpiece, and they were used to determine God's will. First uh, Samuel, there's two occurrences in which David uses this as a means of determining God's will. So, First uh, Chapter twenty, First uh, Samuel twenty-three, eight to thirteen. This is the time when Saul is pursuing David, chasing him. It says Saul summoned all the people to war, to, to go to Kaliah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abithar the priest, "Bring the ephod here." Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kaliah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kaliah surrender me into his hands? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kaliah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kaliah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kaliah, he gave up his expedition. And then again in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 7 to 8, and David said to Abithar, the priest, the son of Amimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue him, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So the priest had the function of uh, making sacrifices before the Lord, of serving in the tabernacle. But there was also a very clear connection here where at times the high priest was a conduit for God's communication to his people. 
The priest helped connect the people to God. Verses 22 to 29, we have the robe and the coat. The robe of the ephod was a single piece of blue. The fabric was uh, had an opening at the top so that it could be worn, uh, pulled over. Uh, and on this, the bottom, they had alternating bells and pomegranates. Chapter uh, 28 gives us more information. It tells us that um, they would serve to make a sound when the high priest would go into the holy place and when the high priest would exit the holy place. So th- this, these gold bells had this function of, of alerting. Um, the holy place was not the holy of holies, but the outer room of the tabernacle. So the high priest would lead uh, the other priests in there to serve there, and then he would lead them out. Um, and we're clearly told that um, they were to do this when they entered an exit so that uh, he does not die. So here we're given some very specific ways in which they are to approach the tabernacle. Um, It was not to be entered into casually. It was a holy place. It was set apart for a very specific purpose, for communing uh, with God. The Spirit of the Lord resided there. The Ark of the Covenant was kept there. It was to be approached in a very specific way. And then finally, in verses 30 to 31, we have the turban of the high priest. And on the plate, uh, there was a plate that sat on the turban of the high priest that sat over his forehead. And there it was inscribed, Holy to the Lord. And it was to be fastened to the turban. In chapter 28, again, it tells us more information. He says that he was to wear it in order that the sacrifices of the people may be accepted by the Lord. So once again, we see some very specific instructions. There's a very specific way here that they were to approach um, God, a very specific way that they were to to worship. We move into the second section of uh, this passage. Verses 32 to 43, we see that the work is completed. So the second section tells us more of Israel's obedience. It provides the summary of the things that were made. This is all of the things that they've been working on, everything together that was going into the tabernacle and made up the tabernacle. So it tells us, of all of the things that were brought, and then tells us about Moses' inspection. So Moses inspects the work that the Lord had instructed them to do, and then he blesses them. I think it's worth us remembering at this point, these guys were wandering around the desert. Uh, They wouldn't have had the luxury of of workshops and, and other things that they may have had in a place where they were more settled, and so they probably had to even make some of the tools that they would have needed to to, to do this work. It's, It's would have been a very significant undertaking uh, to do all of this. But they managed to do it. Verses 32 to 42 talks about the inspection of the work. So they brought all the things, every single piece of furnishing, even the garments. And Moses, who inspects it, was the, he was the one person qualified, essentially, to look at that and make the inspection. It was Moses who had been given the instructions. It was Moses who had actually been given clear visual, a vision of what this was to look like. So he was the only one who had seen this. He's the only one uh, of the people of Israel qualified to to inspect this. And so he looks at all of this. And then finally, in verse 43, Moses blesses the people. He saw the work. He saw it was completed. And he blesses the people. We don't know exactly what the blessing contained, but it is a point of blessing them for doing all that the Lord had expected of them. 
So as we look at our passage today and, and we think about um, what of this passage um, can we take away from it? What of it can we um, think about in our lives today that um, impacts us? There's, there's three things that come to my mind. The first one is, I think we should take advantage of the direct communication that we have to God. The tabernacle was a symbol of the indwelling of the divine presence of God in the camp of Israel. It was the site of communication between God and Moses and God and the people of Israel. It was a sacred place for communing with, the God, with God between his people and Israel. And the high priest, he could determine the will of God through the Urim and Thummim. Um, we don't know where the ephod went. We don't know where the Urim and Thummim went. But I can tell you what, if I was in possession of that, I would be consulting constantly. I, I would ask big questions. I would ask small questions. Um, imagine knowing for sure I can ask God and God will give me uh, a direct answer. I would protect that thing. I would probably wouldn't let it out of my sight. Uh, imagine if uh, your pastor had this. There would be a line outside of his office. You, you wouldn't be able to get in to see him because everybody would be coming and, and con consulting constantly. Should I do this? Should I do that? Um, will I succeed at this? Will I succeed at that? Um, but we don't have that. But we also know that we, we no longer need uh, a high priest. Uh, that communication has been, been opened up. We don't have to go through uh, a high priest. We can communicate uh, directly with God. And so while we don't have the ephod, the urim and thummim, we, we have God's Word. We have a significant amount of revelation uh, here in our Bibles. And we also have the Holy Spirit. During the time of Moses, they would have had minimal, if anything, of the Bible. They, they maybe would have had the book of Genesis Maybe. Uh, but this was at the very beginning. So they had very minimal um, revelation in, in the form of, of the Word of God. But today, uh, we have the entire Bible. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus tells His disciples He's going to be leaving them. And it says that they are sad. But then Jesus tells them, He goes on to say, you know, actually it's to your advantage that I leave you. Which to me is a bit of a surprising statement. I would have thought it would have been great if Christ had just stayed. I mean, you could consult Christ all the time. You could ask him all kinds of questions. And not that you'd get a direct answer. You, you, you might get a story which would, which would baffle you for months. But uh, you could at least ask. Um, but he tells them, it's to your advantage that I leave. Because if I don't leave, then the Helper will not come. So he's telling them it, it's better actually that that I leave. That way the Holy Spirit can come and you will have the Holy Spirit to assist you. And we who are Christians, we, we have the Holy Spirit. And so we do have the Word of God. We do have the Holy Spirit. We are not left um, without ways of communing with our God. So the next question I think we have to ask ourselves is, okay, well, how often do I take advantage of that? I've got direct access to God. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the, the whole of the Bible uh, 
how often do I actually consult this? The, the temple was a, was a sacred space uh, for the people of God, uh, for the community of, of uh, the Jewish people there. I want to ask you a, a really, really basic question. Do you have a sacred space in your life? Do you have that place where you can go and talk to God, commune with God, um, ask God questions, uh, soak up in His Word? And while I said, like, this may seem like a basic question, you, you may say to me, Ryan, you know, this is Discipleship 101. Like, this is one of the first things that we talk to people about when they come to Christ is, hey, you need to get into the Bible. This is how you get to know God. This is how you get to know what uh, God's will is for your life. This is how you, you know how to live. This is how, one of the ways that you can grow in your, in your depth of your relationship with God. Um, but actually, I think it's, it's a question that we have to come back to again and again, because the reality is, as we move through different seasons of life, and we get all kinds of different pressures coming in on our life, our schedule changes. And it's not always easy to find that place, so that sacred space where I, where I spend that time with God. My schedule flexes, changes come in. Uh, there's different goals that, I, that I'm trying to meet and and um, sometimes I'm just trying to survive, and so my schedule gets, gets, gets moved and gets changed. But the truth is, uh, the research that's been out there about people who serve in ministry full-time, about people who've been Christians for a long time, show that spiritual dryness is actually a, a major challenge for, for many of us. And so we have to come back and we have to ask ourselves these questions. I think sometimes we get so busy in the details of our day-to-day -day life um, we get busy with the demands of, of raising kids, uh, sorting through an overflowing email inbox, uh, the curiosity of, of social media, this fear of missing out, and you, you need to know everything that's, that's going on with, with all of your connections and your friends, uh, the ability to binge watch television shows, uh, these, these, all of these things. Uh, can distract us. Are they bad in and of themselves? No. I think a lot of times our challenges are not these things which are in and of themselves are not bad, but if we don't monitor and watch and, and really intentionally think through how much time am I, am I spending on this, they can actually pull us away from God. We wake up in the morning, you grab your phone, you check for the emails that came in during the night, you check your latest Facebook status, you check for the reactions of the photo, the cool photo you posted last night. Uh, Instagram posts, Snapchat stories, wh whatever it is. You, our minds just get overtaken and suddenly the next thing you know we're, we're rushing into our day. And uh, we can easily forget about God. So we need to take direct advantage of that direct access that we have with God. Spending time with Him and, and, and seeking His will for our lives. The second thing I would say that we can uh, take away from this chapter is we can accept forgiveness and move into greater relationship. What a contrast it is in this chapter, this situation where we find Israel following and obeying and doing everything God had instructed them. You contrast that with where they were maybe nine months ago, maybe a year ago. We're not quite sure exactly how long ago it was, but it, but it wasn't more than a year that they were building a, a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping this golden calf. Moses, you've been gone too long. We're not sure where you went. Aaron, can you construct something for us to, to worship? And so 
There they are bowing down to this golden calf. But now, nine months later, a year later, they're doing everything that God had instructed them and they're being blessed for following His specific instructions. Recovery from sin is possible. Moving beyond that place of being stuck in your sin is possible. Maybe you've had a golden calf experience. Maybe you did something that you knew was wrong. You turned your back on God. You knew it was wrong, but you did it anyways. Maybe you've arrived at a place where you think that forgiveness is is just impossible. Theologically, in your head, you know it's possible, but in your heart, you're saying, you know, I don't think God really, really can forgive me. Maybe you feel like you don't deserve forgiveness. Maybe, Maybe you hurt somebody really bad. And you thought, you know, I really... Those words I said, I don't know how I can ever do anything that that could take away that sting of, of those words that I said. I don't think I deserve forgiveness. Or maybe you've gotten stuck in a pattern of sin and, and you just don't even think it's possible to change. Maybe you think you're stuck there because of the way you were raised or, or maybe you think that you're stuck there uh, because of your family background. Uh, there can be all kinds of reasons that we... Things that we tell ourselves on why... Why we're stuck there and we can't get unstuck. Maybe, maybe you've just given up hope. I've tried so many times. I sin. I fall down. I, I ask God to forgive me. I know theologically. I know it in my head He forgives me. But then I go and do the same stupid thing again. How, how long is God going to put up with me? I begin to tell myself that I, I don't think I can change. I just give up hope and I just, I just live there where I am. I'm stuck. If God can forgive the Israelites who fashioned this golden calf, an image of something that God created rather than the Creator God, the God who had so powerfully led them out of Egypt not that long ago, if God can forgive them, He can certainly forgive us as well. He can help us get unstuck from where we're at. And now, in fact, following this golden calf episode, I mean, it's not like God said, okay, you know what? Um... You guys messed up. I'm just going to kind of let you, let you be. I'm, I'm actually going to go find another people who actually are interested in following me. Here at this point, he actually uh, works with the people. And he says, okay, I'm, I'm actually going to give you the ability to increase in your relationship with me, to grow in your relationship with me. And so he gives them the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, on how to build the relationship with God. He uses the people of Israel to do many, many different things in the world. In fact, he uses the people of Israel to be the people through whom he would send his son, through whom Jesus Christ would come, through whom redemption would be available to all of us. So God can forgive us. And he can even take our relationship with him to to a new depth, to a new level. It is possible. The third thing I think we can take away from this Uh, passage, I would say strive for the blessing. Strive for the blessing. The people of Israel fulfilled everything that they were instructed to do in making the tabernacle. They were given clear instructions. And they did it. They did all of them. Like their example, may we strive to fulfill what God has instructed us to do. A couple weeks ago, David preached about... uh, talked about the artisans who were given the responsibility for the craftsmanship of of what would go into the tabernacle. 
Bezalel and Ohilab. They strove to complete the work of God, doing it to the highest quality that they could. You know, I'm sure as they were doing this work, there were probably lots of people who came along and and just gave them their opinion. You know, I I think you should just tweak that a little bit there. and and That's pretty good to keep working on it. Um, But actually, the opinion of all the other people who would have come by, who all the other people who would have looked at it, really didn't matter. They're not the ones who are ultimately going to decide, did they do what they were expected to do? There was only one There was only one opinion that mattered. They were working for the Lord. Moses had seen in a vision exactly what the tabernacle was supposed to look like. Moses knew what it was supposed to be. He was the one who could tell them if they were on track or not. But ultimately, uh, it was God who they were striving to uh, please. It was God who they were striving to do their work for. So let me ask you a question. Whose good opinion... Are you trying to obtain? Whose good opinion are we trying to obtain? When I worked in uh, Malawi, uh, Africa, back before we moved here to Thailand, uh, our partner church was celebrating their 100-year anniversary. This was uh, 2005. And so there was a full-scale celebration that was planned. Uh, it, it had everything. We were going to have a full weekend event. Everybody was going to go down to the the original mission station that, that had been started there back 100 years before. Uh, church members were going to come from all across the country, all the different churches that were, that were there. And um, there was an organizing committee. They, they built a, a monument to, to, to recognize the, the 100 years. Uh, special fabric was, was manufactured and printed so everybody could make... Uh, special dresses and shirts and suits out of this special fabric that commemorated the 100 years uh, celebration. Um, And then somebody who had connections invited the president. Well, surprise, he accepted the invitation. And so suddenly everything changed. Now suddenly the organizing committee is having to deal with... um, They're having to deal with uh, the protocol. There's all kinds of protocol when the, when the president comes. Uh, there's security personnel involved. There's military personnel. The local government gets involved because they're like, well, we need to repair the road up to the mission station so all of the people who, who, who need to get there can get there. Um, we need to find a place for the, the president's helicopter to land. Suddenly everything changed. People are beginning to think, hmm, how can we make a good impression on the president? What can we do to make a good impression? This thing's going to be televised uh, across the country. It's going to be on the radio. What, what kind of impression do we want to make to the nation? And, and if the president sees the conditions of the road, surely he'll want to, you know, just sign something with his pen and, and get that road paved. It would be really great if it was paved. And so there was all, these, all this thinking going on uh, about how do we do that. Um, they had asked me if I, if I would preach at the, at the event. So suddenly my platform's going from a, a couple of thousand people who are to, to potentially millions of people. And so I'm thinking, what do I want to say? Well, what kind of impression do we want to make? Um, and so in all the planning discussions, though, at one point we just had to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, what, what's going on here? What are we trying to accomplish here? What, what is the purpose of this event? 
the purpose of the event was to celebrate what, what God had done over the last hundred years. It wasn't about trying to impress anybody. It wasn't about uh, trying to look good. We're, we're supposed to be thanking God. And, and we, we thank God that the president was going to come. We thank God that we can share the gospel with him and his entourage and, and, and have that broadcast across, across the television. But really, we were getting distracted. We were getting our focus off of, of where things were going. We were getting distracted by trying to gain the favor of, of somebody important. So whose good opinion are we trying to obtain as we go about our Christian lives, as we go about our Christian service? Who is it that we're trying to please? Are we out there laboring for the good opinion of our leaders? If you're in the marketplace, are you out there laboring for the good opinion of your employer? Maybe... If you're here and you're supported, maybe you're laboring for the good opinion of the churches that sent you here. Maybe you're striving after your own ideas. You're, you're actually trying to meet up to your own expectations. You're trying to feel that you've, you've done well enough, that you've done good enough. Who are you trying to get the good opinion of? I think we need to put those things to rest. We need to strive after the only one opinion that really matters. At the end of time, at the end of day, there's only one opinion that matters, and that's, uh, that's the opinion of our Heavenly Father. He's the one that we need to strive after. To one day hear, well done. Good You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com dot o r g